Hey, good morning, everybody. Sure is good to see everyone this morning. It is Christmas time, and like it or not, Christmas usually brings us face to face with our families, right? Families, right? Extended and upended, weird, wonderful, sometimes, if we're honest, wounding as well. Maybe there's lots to look forward to when you think about getting together with family. Maybe there are a few things that make you brace yourself or even cringe. If so, we're all in the same boat, right? And Christmas does contain that. We have to confront realities, histories, and personalities that we wish were different, to say the least. And this is no less true as we direct our attention to Jesus and his family tree, which is what we're spending this month doing. Matthew, in his gospel, outlines this family tree for us as he begins his account of the life and ministry of Jesus. He begins with these words, this is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Matthew writes this genealogy of Jesus to ground him in the story of God, starting with Abraham, who is the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. But Matthew also goes out of his way to highlight points in Jesus' genealogy that others might want to avoid if their aim was to put their Savior in the most pristine light. In fact, when assembling their family trees, Jewish people would normally feature their most glowing ancestors, right? The ones they were most proud to claim. And who wouldn't? That only kind of makes sense to us. But in assembling Jesus' genealogy, Matthew makes sure to include people that maybe would normally be excluded, the fallen and the foreign. We read in his genealogy that Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. That's a story from Genesis 38. Tamar, a childless widow, had to dress like a prostitute and deceive and seduce her father-in-law in order to produce her contribution to Jesus' line. Man, that is a messed up story from every angle. But it's real, and it's right there, highlighted in Jesus' genealogy. Making sure we understand Tamar is part of the story, and Judah is part of the story. Salmon, it goes on to say, is the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. This takes us to Joshua chapter 2. Rahab was a Canaanite who lived in Jericho, a city that was being conquered by Israel. She was not an Israelite, but she helped the Jewish spies and she joined the Israelites. And she too finds herself in Jesus' family tree. Boaz is the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Last week we learned about Ruth, a Moabite widow, her really beautiful story of ordinary faithfulness. There's a whole book of the Bible named after her. Obed is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of King David. Now David's story is a big one. He lived a large life, to be sure. In fact, he is the second most frequently mentioned human in the entire Bible. Only Jesus Christ is mentioned more. David was a shepherd boy. He was the youngest of seven sons. He was a musician, a songwriter. He was the anointed king of Israel. He was a warrior known for his bravery in conquering the great Philistine Goliath with only his faith and a stone and a sling. He was described as a man after God's own heart. 
There are a lot of scenes that we could visit in the plot line of King David, one that's full of ups and downs, of tragedy and triumph. But let's go back to Matthew's genealogy. Verse 6 says, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Uriah's wife, her name was Bathsheba, and she was the object of David's lust. In fact, his union with Bathsheba was one that he forced, one she did not choose. And to cover it up, he plotted and executed her husband's death. This is exactly the kind of story families may tend to keep hush-hush or sweep under the rug. But God doesn't. It's right here, unmistakable in this genealogy. Can't go by it, going to run right into it. Matthew makes sure that we don't miss it, making sure that he highlights the fact that David's wife used to be Uriah's wife, which would remind any of his readers of this part of David's story. She is the wife, not of David, but of Uriah, the man David murdered. There's no telling this story without this part. Matthew makes this clear. And so while I admit it does not feel very Christmassy, I'm going to follow Matthew, Matthew's lead here. And why would I do that? Because you and I are not going to go slay any giants or be crowned kings and queens, but we will sin, and perhaps even devastatingly so. What then? David's story gives us answers. So... Let's begin. The first thing we see in this chapter of David's story is that even a person described as David was, a person after God's own heart can lose their way and tragically sin. We read in 2 Samuel chapter 11 that while his army was on the fields of battle, David chose to stay home in his palace. And one night from his rooftop, he noticed a neighbor named Bathsheba. And even though he knew she was married, he sent men to bring her to his bedroom. Permission was not asked, and refusal was not possible. The result, this results in pregnancy, and when Bathsheba informs David of this, he adds crime on top of crime. Sending for her husband Uriah, David hopes that bringing him in from the battlefield will result in Uriah enjoying the comforts of home and then believing that Bathsheba will be pregnant by him. But this deception proves useless, as Uriah proves to be more of a man of honor than David, and he refuses to sleep anywhere but the entrance to the palace with all the servants in solidarity with his comrades who are all camping in the rough open country. So, with these facts at hand, David resorts to even more treachery, sending Uriah back to the battle with sealed orders for the commanding officer, instructing him to send Uriah, quote, out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die. And that is exactly what happened. We pick up the story in verse 26 when it says, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Now, we shouldn't doubt God's readiness to forgive even the greatest of sins. More on that in a minute, but let's not rush straight to that. Let's pause and just recognize 
David in his sin. We can learn from him that we must not indulge in sin, assuming that we can just repent later. This disrespects our maker and our redeemer. It means something to God. He was paying attention. And we read here that he was displeased. It can happen to any of us, and it did occur in the lives of many people throughout the scriptures. We can become, this is certainly what's happening in David's life. He's, he's got all this power. He can do whatever he wants. And we find David in this chapter doing whatever he wants. We can become desensitized to the effect of our own sin and sinfulness. We can rationalize our disobedience and our selfish indulgence. We can keep excuses handy, a whole stack of them, and underestimate the disregard, what our disregard of God's ways means to him and what it does to our souls. Our hearts can become numbed or hardened, as the Bible often puts it, and we end up not caring if we displease the Lord. Just because God forgives freely doesn't mean we're to take sin lightly. It's an affront to God. It's a cancer to our souls and it's a blight on our relationship. So the first thing we see in this chapter of David's story is that even a person after God's own heart can lose their way and tragically sin. It's a possibility for any of us, not necessarily a probability that we'll sin at the levels that we're seeing here with the, with the level of impact that we're seeing here, but all sin separates us from God. All sin has, in, in effect, the same effect, and that is it builds distance, a wall between us and our maker. Not a wall God wants, but a wall we put up. All That happens to all of us. And what the next part of David's story tells us, that even though that's true, even a king needs genuine accountability and confrontation and confession. Nathan the prophet confronts David with his sin. He comes to David, and he's courageous, really, in doing so, in confronting the king in this way. And at one point he says to him, now we're in 2 Samuel 12, he says, Why do you despise, why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. People in power have been covering up their crimes of abuse and exploitation and greed for millennia. But the Bible boldly exposes and condemns examples of, for instance, sexual abuse against people like Sarah and Hagar and Dinah and two Tamars, and here we read Bathsheba. The stories are ancient, but the issue is ever relevant. Tragically, even whole Christian denominations and dioceses have made headlines for such cover-ups. But this, hear this, this is not the way of God. And the scriptures are brutal in their honesty. There is no cover-up here. David says to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. David is convicted. Here we meet the man after God's own heart. He accepts rebuke and understands the gravity of what he's done. He has sinned against Bathsheba and Uriah, no doubt. The people who look to him as a leader, for sure. But he has also sinned against the Lord. His sin has grieved his God. This God who is ever-present, which is usually a, 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 a truth of comfort to us, right? An ever-present help in time of need. This God who is ever-present was there also present to see David's treachery. Taking another man's wife. Trying to manipulate Uriah. 
than sending him back to the battle, carrying his own orders of execution. God was witness to it all. And now it is before that God that David knows he stands, as we all do. So David is showing us people who take God seriously, take sin seriously, and thus understand and take justice seriously, the disciplines of accountability and confession. He receives Nathan's rebuke, and he is cut to the heart. Even a king needs these. But in the third movement here in our part of David's story, even if our sins are grievous, God desires above all to forgive us. If you remember only one thing from our time together this morning, let it be this, because I believe it is what we most need to know and hunger to hear. When the prophet Nathan came to David confronting him with his sin, David wrote a psalm, a a song of worship, a, a poem to the Lord. We've named it and numbered it Psalm 51, and it begins like this. These are the words of David after hearing the words and rebuke of Nathan. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. He's saying to God, I need something deeply and desperately, Lord, and only you can provide it. My transgressions, how I miss the mark. We all have those. My iniquity, the ways I choose to live less than this way that you've shown, we've all been there. My sin, he says, the actions and the inactions the decisions and the indecision that ends up steering me away from you, God, separates me from you, centers me on myself, spoils my relationships, all of it, Lord. Only you can blot it out, as he says here. Only you can wash it away. Only you can cleanse. And you've promised you would when I ask, when I turn to you. Why? Because of your mercy. Have mercy on me, O God. Someone say, mercy. Have mercy. Your love is unfailing, and your compassion is great. David knows this, and he's showing it to us. We need to know it too. If you're with me here in the room this morning, or you're with me online, or who knows, maybe you're watching this way after the fact, who knows when in the future. But for some reason, at this moment, these words from God's word are getting to land on your heart. I want you to know, and like I said, if you don't remember anything else from this morning, remember this. All that transgression, whatever that iniquity looks like for you and your story, and yes, the sins that we all commit, you can take them all the ones you remember and the ones you've already forgotten. God knows them all. You can take them all and give them to him and ask for his forgiveness. He is ready and waiting to give it. There is nothing that you've ever done, said, thought, experienced, you name it, that need remain separating you from him. It puts a lot of static in the signal when we don't repent, when we don't turn to God, when we don't ask for his his cleansing of our lives. There's a lot in there that can end up interfering in our experience of our relationship with him. It doesn't change his love for us, 
But man, he would love to get that signal clear and clean. When we turn to him and we just say, Lord, you know it all. I don't even have a full inventory, but God, you've seen it. You've seen it all. You've stood as witness to all my ways that I fall short. God, forgive me. Forgive me again today. Lord, cleanse me today. Receive me again today. If you're with me and you're hearing those words, just know that that's true. The psalm goes on. For I know my transgressions, David writes, and my sin is always before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You, so you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. I'm guilty, he says. God, I remember the mud of which I am made and how prone I am to wander and how weak I can be on my own. And I'm recognizing that when I sin, it is you I disrespect and it is your love for me I'm disregarding. So I deserve your rejection and have earned separation. Nothing about me merits your acceptance. I understand my bankruptcy and my nakedness and my need. And so I throw myself on your mercy because this I know to be true of you, God. You're compassionate, greatly so, and unfailing in your love. He goes on, create in me a pure heart, O God. Renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. He's saying, God, I'm hungry for your goodness and to be remade right and true. We all may hunger for that. We may not know how to do it. That's good. God knows. But we long to be made whole, to be made new. I need to stand fast before my maker in his full embrace. This is the ache of every human soul. We need this. I rejoice, he says, in that, in that embrace and nothing else can satisfy. So please pour concrete into my character and give me a firm faith in your merciful salvation. It's on that that I build my life. So David models for us here, and it's a beautiful psalm. I've only read a portion of it. David models for us how to repent, something all of us need to do, and reminds us that mercy is God's mode. You may not have thought this. You may have thought it was disappointment or anger or impatience, but it's not. Mercy is God's most immediate and eager response to you and to me a gift he longs to give us freely if we'll just reach out for it. So even if our sins are grievous, God desires above all else to forgive us. David shows us how to repent, but he also lives through the aftermath of his choices because, and this is our final uh, observation from this chapter of David's story, even though repentance brings forgiveness, it does not cancel consequences. God forgives us with great grace at great price. And this grace is intended to move us in our hearts to flee from sin and pursue righteousness and goodness and truth and all the beauty that's contained therein that God uh, gives us. But if we don't pick up on that, if our hearts are insensitive to that, if we don't kind of see that and make that our motivation, that grace motivates me to, to want to uh, live life well before the Lord, not perfectly, 
but well, then it won't be the beautiful forgiveness of sin that motivates us. It'll end up being the brutal consequences of sin that steers us toward God. David experienced both. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 12, back to the words of Nathan, why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me. This is him speaking on behalf of God by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. And now this became true figuratively and literally for the rest of David's earthly days. Death and mourning and lust and violence and betrayal and even incest and certainly turmoil remained part of his and his family's story. Things were set in motion that didn't just vaporize into nothing, even though he was forgiven by God. The patterns and the problems that David had set in motion here and in other ways in his life We're going to eat through so much of his story and family like so many locusts, released and unable to be called back or retained. Though we may be forgiven of our sins, and it no longer separates us from God, their effects and their examples, their hurts and their heartaches have a momentum of their own. We see this in David's story. David, sometimes actively, sometimes passively, creates a culture in his family and in his royal court that includes exploitation and abuse of power and entitlement and assault and deception. This is a very real part of his very real and human story that he gives his sin to God, he receives God's forgiveness. Man, there's still a lot of wrestling going on and there's still a lot of stuff to work through because this is what real life is like. But he knows, he knows down to his toes that He is made right before God. He receives God's grace and forgiveness. And so we read throughout the rest of his story, God continues to be with him and he continues to lean on the Lord through it all in this real life, even suffering the real earthly consequences of bad choices and examples. Scripture is beautifully balanced in this way as it depicts and confronts these rough realities. And so David's example for us today reminds us that forgiven sin still has consequences, but that bitter consequences don't mean we're not forgiven. Both actually coexist or can at the same time. Now I know, I warned us, this is not the most Christmassy of Christmas time sermons, and it's not. But it's important, even essential, to see that Christmas isn't just the vacuous sentimentality that sometimes it might be known for, but some real visceral spirituality as well. It's not just snow and mistletoe, right? It's gritty grace and real confession. Why do we say this? Because Jesus was born, this is what Christmas, of course, is all about. Jesus was born and came into our world so he could, as the angel put it to Joseph, save the people from their sin. Those people are us, amen? That Jesus came, the incarnation was necessary and all that followed in the cross and in the empty tomb, all of that part of Jesus' story because we needed rescue. We were drowning and we needed saved from ourselves, from our sin. So Matthew doesn't let us walk right by this, but plants it squarely in the middle of that 
genealogy. And to be honest, if there was ever a story to sweep under the rug or whistle past, it would be this one about David. And to be honest, it's kind of been weighing on me all week, knowing I'd be up here sharing about these ugly sins during this beautiful time of year. But this is where I felt directed to go in the story of David, because I can't help but feel we need this, this beautiful grace of God. And ultimately, I'm glad I shared it because it teaches us the very thing we celebrate at Christmas time. And we see this in David and every other king of Israel. We need a better king. Amen. At Christmas time, we celebrate the fact that we have one born in the city of David, but without any of the sins of David. And so as we take our bread and cup, which I invite you to do if you picked one up on your way in, as we take our bread and cup, let me tell you about this better king. In fact, to call him a better king is an understatement. He's the very best and really beyond compare. Our king never failed life's tests, and we know that he faced them all. He never abused his power, but used it for others. And we know that we are in good and caring hands when we give our lives to him. And maybe the most important thing we know about this king, he did not kill and he would not betray, but instead he allowed himself to be both. And so every week when we take the bread, we're reminding ourselves that he said it represents his body given for us. This is what love looks like. Let's take and eat together. And every week when we take the cup, we're recognizing that that love required sacrifice and that that is what this king was willing to do. Not sacrifice others, but himself for us. Let's thank him for it and drink together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you <clears throat> for the truths that we've gotten to read this morning. That this story, not pretty, um, is part of your story. And that there's a real lesson in that. that. God, you didn't skip it, you didn't sweep it, but you included it. And that gives us hope that our stories can be included in your story too, because they're not always pretty. So Lord, we ask that you would cover them with your grace, something that we've learned about you, you're eager to do. So we give, the, uh, we give it all to you. We give all the chapters, all the pages, all the parts of our stories to you, knowing that you'll accept us, forgive us, redeem us, and guide us into better chapters, learning new and better lessons, living on new and better truth. We're thankful for that. We build our lives on it. In Jesus' name, amen.